this Christmas feel joy, gift joy and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22 or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in store and online at arnott's.ie. This Christmas, millions of children across the world are suffering. Children in Ukraine have been forced from their homes. Children in Somalia, Yemen and Ethiopia face starvation. But it shouldn't be this way. We have to do something. This Christmas, please help children by supporting UNICEF's Christmas appeal. Please go to unicef.ie to make a donation to help support children. Thank you. Houston, Texas is the most populated city in the state. It was originally the temporary capital of the Republic of Texas, but a few years later, the capital was moved to Austin. The city began expanding due to its proximity to the Gulf Coast. They were able to establish themselves as a port city. After that, oil and gas production helped the city grow into the 21st century. Houston is also the home of the largest medical center in the world. The Texas Medical Center is more than 1,000 acres and gets around 7.2 million visits per year. Carl Eugene Watts developed a hatred of women and just felt the need to harm them. From physical attacks to murder, he didn't have any other motive than to just harm young women. Over the course of eight years and in two states, he assaulted and murdered dozens of women just because he wanted to. This is Monsters. On May 23, 1982, 19-year-old Lori Lister was walking from her car to her apartment when a man jumped out of the bushes and grabbed her from behind. He put his large hands around her neck and squeezed. He asked, Where do you live? Lori nervously pointed to an apartment on the second floor. The man asked, Is there anyone else there? Lori nodded no. That was a lie. Lori had a roommate who was in the apartment that morning and she might have thought she was protecting her. The man squeezed Lori's neck until she lost consciousness and she was dropped to the ground. He tucked her body under the stairs and took her keys. Up the stairs, he went to the apartment she had pointed out. He unlocked the door and when he went inside, he found 18-year-old Melinda Aguilar getting ready for church. Melinda yelled out for Lori, but the man grabbed her and told her he'd kill her if she screamed. He pushed her into a bedroom and began strangling her. Melinda didn't know what to do, but she knew she didn't want to die, so she pretended to lose consciousness. The man used a belt to tie her ankles and a wire coat hanger to tie her wrists behind her back. He went back outside and dragged Lori upstairs and into the apartment. He dragged her into the bathroom and began filling the bathtub. Meanwhile, Melinda, who was really still conscious, watched as the man dragged her roommate into the bathroom and he clapped his hands, giggling with joy at his own handiwork. While the intruder had his attention on Lori, Melinda managed to make it to the sliding glass door in her room, got it open, and jumped from the balcony. She would say in a later interview that if she was going to die, she'd rather kill herself than have him kill her. Fortunately, the fall from the second story wasn't too bad despite her landing on concrete. Due to the adrenaline, she was able to get up right away and ran to another unit where she saw a neighbor on her porch, drinking coffee. That woman dialed 911 and soon, two Houston police officers responded. Inside, the man had filled the tub and was in the process of drowning Lori. 
He went to the bedroom to check on Melinda, and when he saw she was missing, he looked out the open sliding glass door and saw two police cruisers parked outside. The attacker bolted from the apartment and ran down the stairs past the officers. The younger of the two officers ran after him, while the older one raced back to the cruiser to call for backup. A resident of a downstairs apartment ran upstairs to find Lori in the bathtub unconscious. She pulled the young woman out of the water and began giving her CPR. Soon, Lori began coughing up water and was breathing again. As the officers chased the man who had attacked the two women, he turned around and tried to run down the side of the apartment building towards his parked car, but eventually ran into a dead end. The officer pointed his service revolver at the man and ordered him to the ground. The man complied. The man in custody was Carl Eugene Watts, who went by Coral. As he sat in an interrogation room in a Houston police station, investigators realized that this was not an isolated incident. Sitting in front of them was a man who had killed multiple women over almost a decade. Carl Eugene Watts was born on November 7, 1953 in Killeen, Texas. His parents, Richard and Dorothy May Watts, had married a year earlier in West Virginia, but due to Richard's military career, they were moved to Fort Hood, Texas. Just a few days after Coral was born, the family moved back to Colwood, West Virginia, where they had a daughter, Sharon, a year later. Not long after, Richard left Dorothy and the kids, though no reason has ever been published. Dorothy packed up and moved to the small town of Inkster, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit. There, she took a job as a high school art teacher and did her best to raise her two kids on her own. Returning to West Virginia to visit his grandmother and cousins was where he got his nickname. The accent of the Appalachian area made his family draw out his name and the boy liked it, so he told his mother that he wanted to change it from Carl to Coral. From that point on, that's what he was called. Though Coral struggled in school, he spent extra time on homework and managed to get good grades early on. In 1961, when Coral was eight years old, both he and his sister got meningitis, which is an inflammation of the membrane around the brain. It's reported that Dorothy took both kids to Detroit General Hospital and they admitted Sharon, but wouldn't see Coral. Supposedly, they didn't give her a reason. Sharon was treated for bacterial meningitis and quickly recovered. Dorothy had taken her son to a different hospital where his meningitis got worse and they discovered that he was also suffering from polio. Due to the illnesses, he missed almost his entire third grade year and his school performance never recovered. Once he was released from the hospital, he would complain about not being able to remember things. After Coral recovered from both meningitis and polio, Dorothy met and married a mechanic named Norman Caesar. Norman already had six children of his own and he and Dorothy would go on to have two of their own. That filled the house with two adults and ten children and Coral started to get lost in the shuffle. This turned the young boy inward, and his sister described him as being very quiet and shy. She also said that there was no abuse of any of the children by their mother or stepfather. One thing she thinks affected Coral was his tendency to hold in his emotions. It would take a lot to upset him, but when he was, everything that was bottled up would come out. Coral made up for his lack of academics with school sports. He excelled at football and baseball and ran the 100-yard high hurdles on the track team. He also boxed, which got him a middleweight Golden Glove title. Unfortunately, Coral didn't take losing well, and after he was knocked out the first time, he quit. His behavior began to change when he was a teenager. 
Coral had a paper route to earn extra money, and on June 25, 1969, he attacked 60-year-old Joan Gave, who was one of his regular customers. While he was on his route, he stopped to knock on her door, and when she answered, he hauled off and punched her in the face. He punched her several times before running off. The retreat seemed to happen just as suddenly as the attack. Coral didn't flee the area, though. He continued delivering newspapers on his route before going home like nothing had happened. Police showed up at his house four days later and arrested the 15-year-old. When they asked him why he did it, he responded, I just felt like beating someone up. Coral was admitted to the Lafayette Mental Clinic in Detroit and evaluated by a psychiatrist. He told the doctor that he had dreams about beating up women and even killing them. He said that he always felt better after having one of those dreams. After weeks of evaluation, the doctor suggested that the boy was an impulsive individual who had a passive-aggressive orientation on life. He expressed some confusion in thinking when situations became complex. The doctor also said that Coral was a paranoid young man who is struggling for control of strong homicidal impulses. His behavior controls are faulty and there's a high potential for violent acting out. This individual is considered dangerous. Then he recommended outpatient treatment and released him, because why not? It's not like he was considered very dangerous. He was only regular dangerous. Now Coral was free to do as he pleased, but at least he was getting outpatient treatment, right? Well, from 1969 to 1974, Coral went back to the Lafayette Mental Clinic for outpatient treatment less than 10 times. So, no, he wasn't. What he was doing was playing sports and experimenting with drugs. His mother helped him enough with his schoolwork that he was able to graduate from high school and he got a football scholarship from Lane College in Jackson, Tennessee, but he injured his knee before he was ever able to play a game. He dropped out of college three months later. Coral returned to Michigan where he enrolled in an engineering program at Western Michigan University. He lived on campus and worked in the cafeteria, but the freedom he had on campus gave him time to think about his dreams of harming women. On October 25, 1974, Coral knocked on the door of WMU student Lenore Nazaki. When she answered the door, keeping the chain secured, Coral asked if Charles was home. The young woman explained that he must have the wrong address and the man left. About ten minutes later, he returned and asked for Charles again. Lenore offered to take a message for Charles, and she unhooked the chain and turned to get a piece of paper and a pen. When she did, Coral lunged at her and knocked her to the floor. He put his knee on her chest and began strangling her. Soon she lost consciousness, but she would later say that she could barely see him walking away as everything turned black. He left her there and just walked away. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. A few days later... 
Tenants at a different apartment complex complained that they saw Coral loitering around the complex and knocking on various doors, asking for Charles. Nobody knows who Charles was outside of it being the name of one of his siblings. On October 30th, 1974, Coral was seen walking up the stairs to 19-year-old student Gloria Steele's apartment. The witness watched the man knock on the door, and when Gloria asked through the door what he wanted, he said, I'm looking for Charles. The woman asked, Why are you here? To which Coral responded, I don't know, before he turned and walked down the stairs. Later that day, at about 1.40 p.m., Gloria's body was discovered inside her apartment. She had been stabbed 33 times in the chest with what many people have reported was a screwdriver, but it was actually a wood-carving tool more like a chisel. The tip of the tool had broken off and was lodged in her spine. She also had a crushed windpipe. An autopsy revealed that she had not been sexually assaulted, and investigators determined that nothing had been taken from her apartment. The murder was strictly done out of rage. During the investigation, detectives claimed that family members had cleaned up the scene and moved the body, which destroyed evidence. The family says that's not true. It's unknown exactly what happened, and I couldn't find any opinions on whether or not the killer may have moved the body and attempted to clean up. The police claim that this is why they had no physical evidence from the crime scene. On November 12th, 23-year-old Diane Williams was working as an apartment manager in the complex where she lived. She noticed a man wandering around the complex asking for Charles, and soon he ended up at her door. Like Lenore, she suggested he leave a message for this Charles and presented him with a piece of paper and a pen. He snatched the paper out of her hand and forced himself into the apartment. There, he began strangling her as she fought with all of her might. Luckily, her phone started ringing and she managed to knock the receiver off the hook and was screaming for help. Her husband's secretary was the one who was calling and she could hear the screams over the phone. This scared Coral off, and Diane watched out the window as he got into a tan Pontiac Grand Prix. Diane called the police with the vehicle information. They were able to create a lineup of eight men who matched the physical description and drove that specific vehicle. Both Diane and Lenore were able to pick Coral out of the lineup. He was arrested and charged with the two assaults and admitted to being in the area when Gloria Steele was murdered, but denied killing her. He even offered to take a polygraph, but then asked for a lawyer, and it never happened. He was released the same day, pending an investigation. In December, police searched his residence and did find some carving tools, but nothing that matched the weapon from the murder. Before his trial for assault charges, Coral was evaluated again at the Center for Forensic Psychiatry in Ann Arbor. There, the doctor found him to be competent to stand trial and stated, this patient is clearly dangerous and his potential for recidivistic behavior is great. Recidivism is the tendency for a criminal to reoffend. Coral went on to plead no contest to both assault charges and received a one-year jail sentence. When released from the county jail, Coral moved back to Ingster and lived with his mother and stepfather. He also met a young woman, Dolores Howard, who would end up having his first child, a daughter. Coral really didn't do much to support the child, not even admitting it was his, and eventually took off. What Dolores didn't know was that Coral had actually married another woman about six months after the baby was born, because nothing says husband material like abandoning a child. Coral had met Valeria Goodwill at a disco club and got married in August of 1979. 
Valeria soon realized that Coral was not the man of her dreams. He eventually lost his job as a mechanic at a trucking company, but didn't make an effort to get a new one. He became erratic and slovenly. She said that most of the times, after they had sex, he would leave the house afterwards and be gone for hours. During these post-coitus excursions, it turned out that Coral was breaking into the homes of women. They would report waking up to a man in their bedroom, touching them inappropriately. It was dark enough that none of the victims could positively identify Coral. It was only a year before Valeria threw in the towel and left Coral. After that, he went on a killing spree that would run the next two years. On October 8, 1979, 22-year-old Peggy Pakmara was found strangled to death in the front yard of her boyfriend's neighbor's house. On October 31st, 44-year-old Jean Klein was stabbed 13 times and left outside of her home. People walked by her body all night, assuming she was a gory Halloween decoration. On December 1st, Joseph Foy looked out his window and saw 36-year-old Helen Dutcher struggling with a man before he slashed and stabbed her 12 times. Joseph called the police and he was able to help create a sketch of the man who looked very much like Coral Watts. As 1980 came along, some of the murders began happening in the early morning hours on Sundays. 17-year-old Shirley Small's body was found on April 20th on a sidewalk near her house with a stab wound to the heart and six slices on her face. On July 13th, 26-year-old Glenda Richmond was found dead right in front of the door to her apartment. She had been stabbed 28 times in the chest with a screwdriver. 20-year-old Rebecca Huff was found dead outside of her apartment complex on September 14th. She had been stabbed 54 times with a screwdriver. Due to these three murders happening on Sundays, and despite there being five other murders that happened on other days of the week, the Ann Arbor Press began calling the attacker the Sunday Morning Slasher, because you wouldn't want to report on horrible crimes without giving the murderer a catchy name. On October 6, 1980, which was a Monday, Sandra Dalb was walking home from night school in Windsor, Ontario, when she was attacked on the street by a man matching Coral's description. She was stabbed multiple times in the back and had her face slashed. She watched as the man ran off and got into a tan Pontiac Grand Prix. United States Customs reported that Coral's vehicle was photographed driving back into the U.S. at 2.25 a.m. the following morning. On November 1st, 30-year-old Mary Angus was returning home when a man rushed toward her as she was almost to her front door. She turned around and screamed as loud as she could, and it scared Coral off. U.S. Customs reported that Coral's vehicle had been photographed crossing back into the U.S. at 1.07 a.m. that morning, just over 30 minutes after the attempted attack. Man, Canada should build a wall or something, right? Just five days later, 63-year-old Lena Bennett's body was found hanging by a trench coat from a beam inside her garage. She was naked and had been sexually assaulted with a broom handle. This was the first time any sexual act had been done by Coral. On November 15th, Coral was following a young woman in his car. She noticed that he was following her, and she ran around a corner, but he caught up. Then she started walking the other direction, but Coral flipped around and kept following. Finally, the young woman darted into an apartment building and lost the predator in the shadows. Coral was furious, and he even jumped out of his car and ran around looking for the woman. What Coral didn't know was that two patrol officers were watching him the entire time. 
When he got back to his car, the officers were waiting for him, but Coral ran off. During the chase, he was able to double back and jump into his car, speeding away. The officers had no problem catching up with him, and Coral was arrested for expired tags and driving with a suspended license. When they searched his car, they found a dictionary with the name Rebecca carved into the cover. Rebecca Huff was murdered in September, and they also found some wood carving tools and blood. As soon as the detective entered the room, Coral asked for a lawyer. They didn't have enough evidence to hold him on anything, so once again, the killer was free to go. This time, though, the police began a major surveillance campaign on their suspect. They watched him 24 hours a day when they could. He's believed to have attempted to attack another woman in Ontario, but she scared him away and there's no evidence that connected the attack to Coral. Eventually, he was aware of the surveillance, so he began staying home more. They eventually put a tracker on his car, but it didn't lead them to any evidence. One thing they did notice, though, was that the attacks in the area had stopped in the two months. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul annual appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. Investigators brought him in for another interrogation, but Coral wouldn't talk. So the detective did his best to keep pressure on the suspect. He would pop up at random times asking Coral to talk. He would follow him to the grocery store and make sure he knew he was being watched. March 10, 1981 was the last time anyone in Michigan would see Coral Watts for quite a while. Coral didn't even tell his mother that he was leaving. He headed to West Virginia first and visited his grandmother, where he asked for money. After a few days, he headed out of West Virginia and ended up in Houston, Texas. He got a job as a mechanic at Coastal Transport Company and then he went back to Michigan to get his car. On April 8th, detectives in Michigan sent a 19-page report on Coral Watts to the Houston Police Department. Coral was immediately on their radar. Coral spent almost six months in Houston and then in a town called Columbus, about 70 miles or 115 kilometers west of Houston. It wasn't long before the Houston police stopped keeping their eye on Coral, besides one detective, Detective Doug Bostock, who would check up on him from time to time. The city just didn't have the resources. In the 1980s, Houston was named the murder capital of the world, a title it had coincidentally stolen from Detroit. If Coral wanted to get lost in a sea of crime, he was picking the right cities to do it in. On September 5, 1981, Coral had had enough of lying low and began following a young woman driving through Houston. Linda Tilly was a 22-year-old art student at the University of Texas in Austin and soon she got on the highway and drove the 160 miles or 260 kilometers from Houston to her new apartment in Austin. Coral followed her the entire way. He followed her to her apartment and grabbed her from behind. She fought with everything that she had, and soon both of them fell into the complex's pool. Coral was able to hold Linda underwater until she drowned. Then he climbed back out of the pool and drove all the way back home. 
When Linda's body was discovered the next day, she was fully clothed and there was no sign of a struggle. A toxicology report showed that she had been drinking, so the death was ruled an accidental drowning. Five days after killing Linda, Coral attended a local church service where he met Sheila Williams and the two started dating. Only three days later, Coral attacked a woman who was walking her dogs just after midnight. He stabbed 25-year-old Elizabeth Montgomery in the chest, striking her hard and killing her. Not even 30 minutes later, Coral had followed another young woman home from a grocery store to her apartment, just a few miles away from where he had just murdered Elizabeth. As 22-year-old Susie Wolf walked from her car to her apartment, Coral grabbed her and stabbed her nine times in the chest. Then he turned and disappeared. Susie died on the pavement outside of her apartment. Detective Bostock was still trying to track Coral's movements, but he eventually bought another vehicle, making that task even harder. In October of 1981, he bought a blue 1976 Dodge van with cash. Now he had the perfect serial killer van. Detective Bostock was able to put a tracking device on Coral's Pontiac in November, but he quickly found it and took it off. On January 4, 1982, 27-year-old Ellen Tam got up and went out for her usual three-mile run around Rice University in Houston. Another jogger saw Ellen running at about 6.15 a.m., but an hour and a half later, her body was found hanging from a low tree branch with her own tube top. She was otherwise fully clothed, wearing tights, a sweatshirt, and a jacket. There was no sign of a struggle, so her death was ruled a suicide. You know, like she just went out for a jog, got home, and decided to hang herself. Her family members knew that she wouldn't have committed suicide, and they convinced the medical examiner to change the cause of death. He ultimately wrote, The available evidence indicates her cause of death was either a freak accident or a clever, cunning, opportunistic homicide. The medical examiner was trying to be facetious, but the death would turn out to be the latter. In January, Coral killed two more women and stabbed another three times, but she survived. On the same day as one of the murders, he also slit a young woman's throat, but she also survived. On March 27th, Coral attacked two more women on the same day. 34-year-old Anne Ledette left her house at 4.30 in the morning to go for a jog. While she was out, Coral grabbed her and stabbed her 17 times in the chest, killing her. Not long after, still covered in Anna's blood, Coral spotted a young woman named Glenda Kirby walking down the street and tried to grab her, but the blood on his hands was too slippery and she was able to break free. She managed to get to safety where she called police, but she wasn't able to give much of a description of her attacker. Coral attacked three more women in March and three more in April. On May 22nd, Michelle Mayday had been out drinking and she caught the eye of Coral, who followed her home. As she walked to her apartment, Coral approached her from behind, which she must have sensed because she turned around and was going to say something, but the man grabbed her neck and strangled her until she was unconscious. Coral used her keys to unlock the door and laid her on the living room floor. He stripped off her clothes and placed her in the bathtub. He plugged the drain and let the water fill up over Michelle's head. He would later tell police that he did that so her spirit wouldn't escape. It was something he seemed to enjoy because the next day he would attempt to kill Lori Lister the same way, a task he failed at and was caught in the act. It would be a slam-dunk case because Coral Watts had been caught red-handed, right? For this crime, yes. 
but the prosecutor didn't think he'd be able to make any of the murder charges stick. So he offered Coral a deal to plead guilty to aggravated burglary and attempted murder in exchange for information about his other murder victims. The prosecutor was certain that they would never be able to get a conviction with the lack of evidence they had, and this way they could at least close the cases. The state of Michigan refused to be part of the plea deal, though, so any crimes he confessed to in that state, he would be charged with. None of the victims' families or the surviving victims were consulted regarding the plea deal, and it's safe to say that most of them were not happy with it. When the deal was published in the news, the citizens of Houston weren't happy either. It was too late, though. The deal was done. Coral took the deal and confessed to 12 murders with absolute immunity. He was sentenced to the maximum allowable sentence of 60 years with parole eligibility after 20. He admitted to a dozen murders and could be out of prison in 20 years. In 1983, Coral made a feeble effort to escape prison but was quickly stopped. He spent 15 days in solitary, lost all of his good time credit, and was transferred to a high-security unit. One of the conditions of Coral's sentence was that he was not eligible for good time because he was classified as a violent offender. I mean, he strangled two women and attempted to drown one of them. The problem was, a court of appeals agreed that Coral didn't fit into that category since he didn't use a weapon. The prosecutor's effort to get the water in the tub classified as a deadly weapon failed and the violent offender status was lifted. Apparently, I could strangle you and attempt to drown you, and that's not considered violence in the eyes of Texas courts. In 2002, Coral Watts was given a scheduled release date of May 8, 2006. In order to keep a violent serial killer off of their streets, the governor of Texas signed extradition papers to send Coral to Michigan where he would stand trial for the murder of Helen Dutcher. They had a witness, Joseph Foy, so they were certain that they would be able to convict Coral of the crime. Coral Watts was extradited to Michigan where he was convicted of the murder of Helen Dutcher. On November 17, 2004, he was sentenced to life in prison. Three years later, he was tried and convicted of the 1974 murder of Gloria Steele. He died of prostate cancer in prison exactly two months later. Coral Watts had no other motivation to harm women than he just wanted to harm them. He had an uncontrollable urge to kill young women and he wasn't able to stop himself. He was the very definition of a monster down to his core, so much so that there wasn't any human left. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. 
If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22 or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. No, good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you.